Coming up today, Matt Reynolds explains how coronavirus may actually be airborne. Matt Burgess looks at the grim future for Huawei. And Vicky tells us all to wear face masks. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Matt Burgess. Hello. Vicky Turk. Hello. And Matt Reynolds. Hello. This was the week when a report into Russian interference in the 2017 UK general election and 2016 Brexit vote will be published. The report had been controversially buried by officials, but will now be made public. This was also the week when Twitter suffered from its biggest ever security incident. High-profile accounts including Elon Musk, Apple, Uber and Barack Obama all tweeted a Bitcoin scam as Twitter's back-end itself was compromised. This was also the week that the European Court of Justice ruled that Privacy Shield, a data-sharing mechanism between the EU and US, was invalid and failed to protect privacy and data protection rules. It's a landmark ruling, although it's not clear yet exactly what the practical impact will be for companies that share data across borders. Standard contractual clauses, or SCCs, another template for transferring data, remain valid. And it was finally the week when we found out that the world's population is heading for a crash eventually. A study published in The Lancet projects that the world's population will peak at 9.7 billion around 2064 before falling to 8.8 billion by the end of the century, with some countries such as Italy, Spain, Japan and Thailand expected to see their population more than half. It's all because women are having much fewer children. In 1950, the average woman had 4.7 children, but by 2100, that will be 1.7 children per woman. So let me get that straight. Some countries, their populations are going to halve in the next few decades. Well, not so, not in the next few decades, but by um, by 2100. So I think somewhere like Italy has a population of around 60, maybe 65 million at the moment. It's projected to go down to 28 million. In the UK, I think we'll peak at 77 million and then drop back down to 70 million. But yeah, it's actually really dramatic in some parts of the world. And I, I suppose the reason that population levels are going to peak globally is that we're just going to run out of and we're already running out of space and food but there's sort of a limit on how many people we can fit on the planet sustainably interestingly not so much that actually the the limiting factor on population tends to be that the more women are educated the fewer babies they have per person essentially so as as you see countries becoming more educated especially women spending longer in school they have babies much later on and they have fewer babies so that's basically the driver there's not so much a a um resource constraint so much as education causing this uh drop in in babies per person Well, I hope your fact is as good as that this week, Matt Reynolds. What did you learn? So I learned that baby carrots are actually just normal-sized carrots that are cut down to size and then peeled to make them look like mini carrots. So we've been living a carrot lie. And in fact, baby carrots were invented by a Californian farmer in 1986 as a way to use up ugly carrots that would otherwise be wasted and now baby carrots make up 70% of all US carrot sales. 
I sort of have uh, beef with this fact. I feel like I've had a, like a heated debate about it before, and it's concluded in that sort of like the baby carrots that are sold in UK shops aren't ones that are sort of like um, shaved down or whatever. The ones that we sell in the UK are um, just a smaller variety of carrots that are grown, whereas the whereas a baby carrot in the US is a definition of something else so i mean you're correct but maybe not for the uk I don't know. well well you I, I i distinctly remember as a child having baby carrots that came in a kind of freezer pack with peas as well and i hated baby carrots but i liked normal carrots that were small but you're right so a normal carrot basically has a kind of shoulder right you can see the top it has a kind of shape of a normal carrot whereas baby carrots tend to be a little bit too straight to be normal carrots but you're right to say that they're not sold as um in kind of fresh pre-packaged things so much but you do see them a in the freezer aisle and b quite often if you get little um you know packs for children and stuff like that or crudités and stuff they will be baby carrots at this shaved uh, form so we do have them in the uk but probably not to the extent that in the us i don't know what i find more horrifying the fact that baby carrots are a lie or the fact that 70 percent of carrot sales in the us are these baby carrots why are why are americans not eating normal carrots yeah, I think I also saw that, in fact, that makes baby carrots the single most popular vegetable in the US. I don't get it, because to me, making them baby makes them way worse, because I think the skin is nice, and they just, they're just they just all kind of soft, and kind, they're, they're kind of watery. I, I, I hate baby carrots for that reason. I think they're the worst veg. I think the best baby veg is baby sweet corn, because at least that is actually a small version, and not just a shaved down uh, corn on the cob. You're listening to the YGK Podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on what Matt Reynolds thinks about carrots. Uh, Vicky Turk, please save us. I've got, uh, yeah, I've got an optimistic fact for you this week, actually, something a bit cheery. Um, so do you know what a pine marten is? Really cute animal. It's a small mammal, kind of looks a bit like a weasel or that sort of family, but it's got a really cute face. Um, do a Google image search. They're, they're really cute, kind of like a smaller red panda or something like that. Anyway, the pine marten was once the second most common can of carnivore in Britain, but this very cute mammal became almost extinct, certainly in England by the 20th century due to habitat destruction, which is probably why you haven't seen one. But as I said, it's a cheery fact, a good news fact. The first pine martens to be reintroduced to England from Scotland have now had babies, which is a promising sign for re-establishing the pine marten in areas of England. In this case, it was the Forest of Dean in Gloucestershire. Very nice. I have a animal baby related fact as well. Uh, today, uh, July 16th, when we're recording this, is World Snake Day because everything needs its day. Uh, so happy World Snake Day to everyone. But did you know that a baby snake is unimaginatively called a snakelet? And a baby spider is a spiderling. No one really bothered to come up with specific baby names for snakes or spiders. Anyone got a favourite baby animal name? No. I don't have. I can, But I saw a snake on a walk the other day <laughs> in London. I yes. saw an urban snake. It actually was in Walthamstow Marshes. And was it, it was a snake? hanging out. Uh, no, it looked like a pretty big snake. Mm. It was like maybe three feet long or so. And what was I thought was fascinating, it was just shooting along this kind of canal, um, swimming really well with his head out of the water. And I was really impressed to see a snake, you know, go from land to water with, you know, without skipping a beat. We're finding out a lot about your life. You didn't like baby carrots as a kid and you had a nice walk and saw a snake. 
very good very true (laughs) what did you learn this week matt burgess uh, this week, I learned that the Guinness Book of World Records once held its own world record. It was, and the past tense is important here, it was the best-selling copyrighted book at one point, around <laughs> sort of 2013. Um, okay. that, that was true in 2013. I asked Guinness World Records if it's still the case, but they no longer track the record. So, is it because they no longer hold the record? Yeah, I think um, we were discussing this as a team beforehand, and Vicky uh, pointed out that probably harry potter is the most uh best-selling book now at least the first one but we all remember a point in our past where every single christmas an aunt or uncle would buy you the guinness book of records right it just happened well i think this was part of the the controversy that we had we had quite a long slack discussion about this particular old world record and you know whether all of the books of guinness world records count as just one book Mm. or whether it's a fresh book each year it's like when they talk about the Bible. Is it all kinds of Bible? Or does it have to be a specific kind of Bible? And the Bible would come under a different category to this record anyway, because obviously it's not copyrighted. So Exactly, because it's very, very old. Much like your fact, Matt Burgess. But thank you for bringing it to us. Our first story this week is about coronavirus, Matt Reynolds, and fear that it might be airborne. What does that mean? Yeah, that's right. So... Yeah, if we think about over the last six months, we've been living with coronavirus, actually getting on for seven months now, not even getting on, actually is seven months now. Uh, So we're starting to get a picture of where this virus is commonly transmitted. And although there's there's a whole bunch of things that we don't know about coronavirus, we do know there have been significant outbreaks in restaurants, in bars, in churches, in workplaces, and of course, very early on in cruise ships. Now, Beside being places where people gather for hours on end, all of these places, they often uh, lack proper ventilation. Quite often they're indoors, they're atmospheres where people are talking very loudly. So there's some kind of um, shared characteristic between these spaces. And though we've started to get a good idea of where this is being transmitted and where a lot of these sort of big transmission events are happening, what we haven't really known to such an extent is how coronavirus is transmitted. So up until now, most health authorities and most of our research has you know, worked on the assumption and the existing evidence that coronavirus is primarily transmitted by coughing or sneezing large droplets that are then inhaled by someone else. And essentially, that's that's really the underpinning of the two metre rule, right? That, that, that rule is really in place because that's more or less how long it takes for a droplet to fall to the ground. So the idea is, if you're two metres away, someone can't really cough the virus onto you because it just wouldn't reach that far. It fall onto the ground and it eventually die from being exposed to the um you know the environment anyway now that is all true but now what we're starting to find out and what we're starting to realize is being more accepted there's increasing evidence for another form of transmission and that is called aerosols or you know airborne transmission so we've all gotten quite used to the idea of coughing into our elbow and we're all soon in the UK, at least everyone else in the world got a bit of a head start. We're going to be wearing masks pretty much all the time when we're out and about. What are aerosols and how are they different to these droplets that we've all become familiar with? Yeah, so what I just described with, with droplets are basically you know fall to the ground or onto another surface within a few metres uh, due to gravity because they're quite, quite heavy, these droplets. What aerosols are are really, really uh, tiny bits of mucus or saliva that, that 
they kind of envelop the uh, the virus. So they're almost like little floating bubbles of virus, which is a lovely image. And what's really crucial about these aerosol particles is that they are smaller than five micrometers in diameter. So that's a little less less than one-tenth the width of an average human hair. So these are really, really, really small. And that's really important because, well, for a couple of reasons. One, it means that they can be emitted in the same way as droplets. So when you sneeze, you might also create lots of these aerosolized particles as well. But also you can emit them via breathing or talking. So actually there's kind of more routes of uh, emission as well. And crucially, they're so light that they can float before dropping to the ground. And this means that coronavirus could linger in the air for hours and build up in large concentrations. And that potentially could be you know, a, a, a potential route of transmission. And, and the reason why we're talking about this now is because the WHO and, and World Health, you know, um, you know, health authorities more generally are just starting to acknowledge this. So uh, recently there was an open letter from 239 researchers in 32 countries and, and they're across a different a bunch of fields some were you know in engineering some looked at air quality looked at um, ventilation some you know worked in virology and they were basically arguing that the who needs to soften its position and say you know what maybe there's this form of transmission behind coronavirus as well and it kind of worked the who has now changed its advice to say that in certain settings such as restaurants nightclubs places of worship or places of work where people may be shouting, talking or singing, that we can't rule out aerosol transmission, which is quite a jump from its previous stance where it said, really, the, the only transmission we need to worry about is this droplet transmission. Don't worry about aerosols. Yeah, so obviously the position and the response of health authorities uh, from the World Health Organization to uh, local and national uh, organizations is changing all the time as we learn more about the coronavirus. So what evidence is there uh, that sort of prompted this um, sort of potential change in position around aerosol transmission? Yeah, so the evidence is pretty mixed really and one problem is that it's quite difficult to look for evidence of aerosol transmission. So there have been a number of lab experiments that have demonstrated that the virus which is called uh, SARS-CoV-2 can be aerosolized and survive in this form up to 16 hours according to one study. So we definitely know it can survive in an aerosolized um, form but outside of a carefully controlled lab it's much more difficult to detect aerosols and study whether they even transmit the virus. So, so imagine you could walk into a pub and do a sample of the air there for instance but you don't know if anyone in that pub has coronavirus uh, how long they've been there how much they've been talking so it's really really difficult to actually get a sense of um you know where actually this virus is going now Researchers found genetic material from coronavirus from aerosols collected at two hospitals in Wuhan, a really useful example because you know in hospitals there are people with coronavirus, there are people talking, there might be these particles. But what we don't know um, was whether these particles were actually infectious because although we saw pieces of viral DNA, I'm sorry, viral RNA, it it wasn't live virus and, and virus RNA on itself or by itself is not infectious. So that's our kind of direct evidence, if you like. But a lot of our indirect evidence comes from case studies of actual infections. So researchers believe an air conditioner, um, 
you push virus laden air across a restaurant um, in China, and this infected nine people from three families whose tables were more than a metre apart. And another really important case, I think I talked about this on a, on a podcast a little while ago, was this uh, choir rehearsal in you know, Washington State in the US, where one person infected at least 33 other participants, and actually they probably infected 53 because that's how many people had symptoms, um, even though they maintained a physical distance for a lot of it. I think it's quite difficult to um, hit 33 different people with your droplet. So it suggests if lots of people in one space are getting the virus, there might be some other mode of transmission that it's kind of lingering in the air more generally. So a lot of the evidence is kind of suggested from these transmission events that we know about. So if the virus is airborne, what does that mean for social distancing? How can people protect themselves against it? Yeah, and that's really the important point and why I thought it was worth bringing on the podcast because really this is a bit of a, a fight between scientists, right? Some people are like, no, it's only aerosols, it's only droplets. I'm sorry, it's only droplets. It's only this kind of direct transmission. And other people are like, well, we should be thinking about aerosols. Um, and the reason why this fight matters is because if people can transmit coronavirus through exhaled air and it can stay around in the air for really long times, social distancing might not always be particularly effective. So I talked earlier about how that two metre distance, well, that's all about droplet transmission. Now, if you think if you're, well, the government's regulations at the moment are saying, well, within a restaurant, um, it's fine to have people as long as they're, you know, distance on tables. So leave a table between them and, you know, have extra hand sanitization and things like that. Well, that's fine if what you're trying to defend against is droplet transmission you know another you know another recommendation have have shields between tables that's great for stopping droplet transmission but that doesn't really help um if what you should be guarding against is this idea that you don't want to be spreading this um you know virus throughout the area and you know letting the air circulate around so if we were going to change our regulations so they took aerosols more into account into account what we might you know, start doing is placing much more emphasis on ventilation. So it might be simple things like keeping windows and doors open, but also improving air conditioning systems that make sure air is constantly exchanged. And this is really, really important for, I'm sure we've all been in a small sweaty pub where, especially in winter, you can't really open the window and there's not really a really a very good way of exchanging that air. Really big problem in, in nightclubs and gyms and places like that too. It also suggests that we might want to use something like germicidal ultraviolet, ultraviolet light. So we know that there's a kind of uh, a form of ultraviolet light that is known to effectively inactivate human coronaviruses while being safe to use around people. And it might be the case, well, actually, you might want to have that within an environment because that might deal with this kind of residual virus that might be hanging around in the air. But until we really can work out how much transmission is driven by aerosols, it's difficult to know whether you would want to put in place policies that require, you know, pubs and restaurants and gyms to take all these extra steps, because maybe it's a little bit too overcautious anyway. There's a number of problems with dealing with the coronavirus, and a lot of it comes down to not having enough data, right? So we're talking about a problem that we can only really replicate in the real world um, and that they're struggling to replicate in laboratory conditions. And at the moment, um, in the Northern Hemisphere, we're going into the middle of summer and there are concerns in the UK that a winter spike of coronavirus infections could be way worse than the first, up to 120,000 deaths if the government doesn't put in place significant steps to 
try and squash that. And what science has been saying is right now we're able to meet outside. We're keeping our windows open. When you're on a bus or a train, the windows there are open. So there's more general ventilation. And if it does come to pass that these aerosols are hanging around and are parts of infection, then that's really, really problematic in countries that have quite severe winters, which are already putting a lot of pressure on the health service, that this would be a real double whammy. Yeah, I think that's a huge issue, especially because planning ventilation and knowing how often air is exchanging within a space. Basically, that's what it comes down to, right? It's you're within a space, you want to make sure that that air, you're not breathing that same air for too long at any one time. You need to get it out either by opening a window or by turning on the air conditioning or doing something or, you know, reducing the number of people in there. Well, actually, working that out and working how well ventilated your space is, it's quite difficult when you want to improve it, right? So it, it requires businesses to start to analyse, well, do we have a safe level of air ventilation? How might we increase this ventilation? How does that interact with the number of people within our business? And how does that change when different environmental things change? Because as you said, James, it's different when you've got the door shut when it's winter, when it's warmer inside uh, versus outside. So actually, this has lots and lots of really crucial implications. So knowing how what role airborne transmission plays in coronavirus might be really really important when it gets past the summer months because like you said right now we can sit in pub gardens we can socialize outside it's not so much a problem airborne is going to become a much bigger factor when we're all forced to spend most of our time inside and for businesses that are putting in place quite expensive measures to enable them to open with more staff and more infrastructure and potentially less profit asking them to put in place more measures that are more costly and potentially worry people more about entering them then you really start to create an almost impossible situation for businesses that are already struggling to survive so you can see why there is a real hesitancy to say yes it's airborne it's a really interesting study nonetheless and one that we'll be following closely we'll include a link in the show notes as we always do um at the top of the show i said it had been a bad week for huawei well it's also been a bad week for TikTok and potentially Chinese technology companies in general, Matt Burgess. Yeah, so um, we'll get on to Huawei in a little bit, but um, TikTok is having serious international problems at the moment. Over the last couple of weeks, uh, just to catch anybody up who hasn't been following this, um, the app has faced increasing scrutiny um, by governments and countries around the world. Um, This is after the app itself uh, has sort of had a big surge in popularity as countries have locked down around the world. There's been a lot of of extra users, a lot of extra videos, uh, and we're talking just huge amounts of growth over the last few months. But things started to come to a head recently when uh, officials in India banned the app as well as uh, 58 other Chinese-owned apps after its soldiers were involved in deadly clashes with Chinese troops in the Himalayas. Um, Since then, the issues have been escalated. Uh, US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo raised the stakes by saying that the country, uh, the US, is looking at banning apps from Chinese companies, the biggest one of these being TikTok, and that was cited as one of the key examples. 
Um, and in the past, both uh, US and Australian milita militaries have blocked soldiers from using the app. Um, and more recently, in the sort of as um, concerns have been raised by the US, uh, Amazon briefly told all of its uh, hundreds of thousands of employees to delete the app from their phones due to security risks, uh, but backtracked on that policy very quickly. And I think US business uh, Wells Fargo has told um, users of TikTok to delete the app from their phones when um, their phones also have work emails on. And essentially, this all comes down to uh, because TikTok is owned by a Chinese company. Right. So TikTok's parent company is this, is this huge company called ByteDance and very, very prominent in the Chinese app economy. But it's become embroiled in what is essentially a dispute between governments. I, I'm really interested. Is it, you know, is it? Is it just because is TikTok just a you know a victim of this uh, diplomatic conflict, or is there actually a reason to think well, actually this app has pretty strong links to the Chinese government, and and it is some kind of proxy for getting at the Chinese government? How much do we know about those links between TikTok and ByteDance and the the Chinese government itself? Yeah, so the whole situation is a little bit messy, which is something that we have seen previously with um, Huawei. So as you said, TikTok is owned by ByteDance, which is a Chinese company based in Beijing, huge company, employs thousands of people, um, has loads of different products in China. And TikTok is its version um, of an app, which it originally, well, it has in uh, in China, which is a slightly different app. They have slightly different functionalities, but TikTok is essentially the international version. Um, and a lot of these concerns that we're seeing uh, being raised are because of um, the links to China, essentially. And I think the, the, the main issue that is at play here is sort of uncertainty around um, the control of the Chinese state over businesses um, that operate in the country. So over the last four or five years since 2014, um, China has introduced a lot of new laws around cyber, around cyberspace, essentially. So there are laws around national security, intelligence gathering, uh, what data companies can collect and sort of privacy. And the sort of fear with TikTok is that user data could be being sent back to China. Some of the experts that I spoke to essentially said that uh, in the mechanisms are in place um, for this sort of data transfer and these systems, uh, the fears that are being sort of allayed, the, the mechanisms mechanisms are in place for that those things to happen but there is very little evidence of this happening so there is no smoking gun there is no um evidence that china is receiving a huge amount of data from tiktok um the app itself it collects uh, the sort of data that a lot of other social media app apps collect so ip addresses contacts model of phone metadata around videos phone numbers location payment information email addresses age the sort of things that you would give to t give to google facebook in some circumstances um, the app has had security vulnerabilities but every single app does have vulnerabilities at certain points and there's no evidence that any information is directly being sent back to uh, china or uh, being collected in this way. ByteDance itself has previously fallen foul of some of China's strict uh, rules around sort of what can and can't be said. Uh, in 2018, officials ordered the company to suspend one of its news apps and uh, one of its social media apps after uh, regulators said that news stories and jokes displayed on the apps were opposed to morality and off-colour. So essentially out of, uh, away from sort of Chinese values that they wanted to promote and the, and 
ByteDance's CEO uh, issued a public apology saying that the product has gone astray uh, and that it's been posting content that goes against socialist core values. Essentially, it had fallen out of step with um, with the government line. So um, there have been some issues raised around that. But in this case with TikTok, there is no smoking gun at the second. So it's interesting because TikTok as a product is not actually used in China, right? It's used in, well... The US, India until recently, the UK, uh, lots of other places around the world. How has TikTok responded to these claims then that, you know, it has some people have something to worry about it because of its of its um, Chinese ownership? Yeah, so TikTok itself and um, its representatives have sort of heavily denied sort of any uh, data being back to, sent back to China. They said they'd never give en- given the government in China any data. Um, they've got an American CEO. Um, it's thinking about introducing an international headquarters for TikTok, that is ByteDance. Um, and the app itself has different features to its Chinese counterpart, which is called Douyin, uh, as you just sort of referenced there, Vicky. Uh, it's denied any sort of spying claims and... I think that it's it's clear that there is, uh, as I said, there is no real strong evidence that this sort of uh, transaction giving data to the government has happened, um, at least publicly. We do not know that. Um, so and as China imposed its national security law on Hong Kong recently, TikTok uh, went a bit further than other companies such as Facebook and WhatsApp and, uh, and Google that said that they would pause data sharing uh, agreements with the government. TikTok said it would stop operating in Hong Kong entirely. Um, its previous statements have said it's not influenced by any foreign government, including the Chinese government. It doesn't operate in China, doesn't have any intention to do so. So very strong sort of denials coming out. Um, there are a couple of sort of areas where things are unclear. Um, so it does have uh, its data centers outside of China, but it's not clear whether uh, how much data is sent back to developers working in China. So um, the app's privacy policy says TikTok may share your information with a parent company. Uh, we asked TikTok about this. It didn't sort of provide any sort of details of what is shared, how often. Um, and in a April 2019 statement, TikTok also suggested that some of its user data is sent to China. So one of its executives was on record as saying uh, that its goal is to minimize data access across regions, um, which includes China. Um, so there is potentially some information being sent, but that could be used for development, that could be used for uh, sort of monitoring, um, uh, moderating how, how videos and stuff on the app are working. Um, so there is some confusion there essentially about um, what is definitely happening and what some of the information being transferred is. There is based on all the evidence that's publicly available seemingly a degree of xenophobia about all of this. We've seen previous examples of viral apps that come out of Russia and China um, having lots and lots of privacy concerns thrown at them. The kinds of concerns that are thrown at Facebook and Google all the time, but, you know, that's just how Facebook and Google operate, whereas these are potential vectors for spying by the Russian and Chinese states. And I think what's confusing for people here is on the one side, we have the potential xenophobia surrounding TikTok and really companies would rather that their citizens used an app developed by Americans or if it's in India, an Indian company. We have that on one side. And on the other side, we have the Huawei situation, which is grounded in concerns around security as well as a trade war. Yeah, so uh, as well as the sort of like concerns around TikTok uh, happening this week, and it's worth noting that a few 
large influential American TikTokers uh, have sort of said that they were preparing to step away from the platform if a ban was introduced. Uh, we've also seen Huawei come back into the news in the UK um, and there's been a ban imposed on Huawei's equipment being used in 5G networks um, from 2027 in the UK and companies have to, telecoms companies have to stop developing uh, Huawei's um, or buying Huawei systems from the end of this year. Um, the two are sort of very linked in many ways, uh, even though they're obviously sort of working in very different areas. Um, there is, uh, Huawei is obviously a product company and makes telecoms equipments. TikTok is a company that is in social media software platform. Um, with Huawei, we've seen that US sanctions have been introduced in May, and this has essentially changed the UK government's position on uh, how safe Huawei equipment is. Um, and that is because of um, sort of some of the processes used to develop Huawei chips uh, are American based or involve American technology and the US sanctions say that American technology and processes and manufacturing can't be involved um, by Huawei, they can't use them. So essentially Huawei has to develop new product, new chips or products, which is costly, expensive, difficult to do, may not even be possible. Um, but if it was to do so, the UK government has, and the National Cyber Security Centre here has said that um, there would be too much of a threat, uh, too many unknowns around Huawei. So that's why it's been banned. But I think underlying all of this, as you sort of, you pointed to James, there's a lot of fear of, um, of China and xenophobia and people not knowing uh, how the country Country is operating and essentially just seeing it as a threat and there are there are reasons to see China as a threat um, and there are such as uh, ongoing um, cyber attacks from the country and sort of like state-based activity there but with some of these big companies that are multinational employ thousands of people around the world um, there is not a smoking gun there's not any sort of real concrete evidence to say that these companies have done something wrong or are um, colluding with the Chinese government there's never been anything that's really been published about TikTok or Huawei or uh, any of the other sort of companies that fall into this that really shows um, there is something nefarious going on with these big companies what it maybe comes down to certainly for European countries the United States is slightly different is a realization that there's a benefit for your economy and for your security as a nation to developing these kind of capabilities in-house and not outsourcing them to the cheapest bidder overseas, especially when they come from China. It's a really, really complicated situation. And seeing TikTok dragged into a trade war, essentially, it almost makes sense for Huawei. For TikTok, it's quite extraordinary. But the, there is a likelihood that other countries will take the lead that India has um, has shown and, and ban TikTok as well. And I imagine this is a story that we're going to be reporting on quite a bit over the coming months as TikTok continues to grow and pressures continue to build. Podcast at Wired wired.co.uk do email in with your thoughts on that story or anything else that we talk about on the show this week our third story vicky is about face masks once again Yes, again, the debate over face masks, or to be more specific, face coverings, has been raging once again in the UK and particularly in England this week. If you live elsewhere, this might, may be a bit surprising because lots of cities and countries have made fa wearing face coverings compulsory, or at least it's become the norm to wear them quite a while ago. Uh, but that hasn't really been the case yet in England. 
From July 24th, however, it will be mandatory to wear a face covering in shops. If you don't, you could get a £100 fine. So why are face coverings being made mandatory now? Loads of countries have done it already. Why are we getting this in place now? Yeah, I mean, some people would probably argue that it is long overdue in England and it basically does come down to the science. You know, evidence shows that face masks or face coverings work at least on some level to help prevent the spread of SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus that causes COVID-19. If you have the virus and remember, you might not actually know if you've got it or not. A mask or a covering will help stop you from transmitting it to other people, especially in places where you can't effectively social distance. So, Matt, obviously you were talking about this earlier, especially when you think about droplets and the transmission of droplets. It's quite basic, really. It's um, quite easy to understand that if you've got something in front of your nose and mouth that will catch those or at least some of them and, you know, maybe stop them infecting someone else. So really, it's less about protecting yourself and more about protecting other people who you might come into contact with. This also means, however, that you still need to be taking all the other precautions, like avoiding crowds, social distancing, washing hands, things like that, to protect yourself. So don't let a face covering give you a false sense of security, because it's not really necessarily doing so much for you as it is for people around you. Rather than take a look at the entire world, let's have a look at the rules in England. So this isn't even the whole of the United Kingdom. This is one of the kingdoms of the United Kingdom. What exactly are the rules in England and when and where do I need to wear a face covering? Yeah, so it does get a bit complex because obviously every place is different. But in England, uh, which is the new rule, you already have to wear them on public transport. And from 24th of July, you will need to wear a face covering in shops and supermarkets. And one of the reasons for talking specifically about shops is that retail assistants have been hit particularly hard by coronavirus. They've had a higher likelihood of getting sick or dying. Um, so you're really helping them. You know, these are people whose jobs mean that they do come into contact with a lot of other people and they can't really work from home if, you know, their job is to stand in a shop serving customers. If you refuse to wear one after the law comes into force, shopkeepers can refuse you entry to shops and they can call the police and you can be fined. Um, there are some exemptions, as there are already on public transport, for um, young children and people with disabilities that interfere with their ability to wear a face covering. But for most people, you should be wearing one. There is a little bit of confusion over what exactly counts as a shop. Um, so this week, one Downing Street spokesperson suggested that you might not have to wear one if you're buying takeaway food. Um, and it, it's caused a lot of confusion over when you do have to wear them and when you don't. But we can expect some more clarification before the rule officially comes into force. And honestly, if you want to do your bit, you know, you, you maybe should just be volunteering to wear a face mask, even when you don't have to. Because um, this is kind of just an altruistic thing, right? You're, you're just trying to help prevent the spread of the pandemic, pandemic even further. Yeah, and on the spread of the pandemic, do we know why uh, England has been so late in introducing sort of rules around face masks when other countries have obviously done stuff sooner? That's a really good question. Um, the UK and particularly England does seem to be rather behind a lot of places. Uh, so in Europe, face coverings have been mandatory in certain situations in countries, including Germany, Israel and Spain. Since around April and May, you know, several months ago, they've been mandatory in shops in Scotland since last week. Um, 
if you remember a few months ago, there was actually quite a lot of controversy over how effective face coverings were. And the government actually seemed to be discouraging people from using them at some point. Part of this might have been over fears that people would take PPE from the people who needed it most, such as health workers, um, you know, during the time when we were having a shortage. Uh, but now it's pretty clear from the science that face coverings do make some difference in reducing the spread of the virus. I think people have, have there's a lot more consensus on that at the moment. Um, and obviously, it has become a bit of, po of a political issue, which may also feed into when and whether countries adopt these rules. So Amit was on here recently talking about mask shaming. Uh, there are people who are trying to kick up a fuss about having to wear face coverings, suggesting that it somehow impinges on their freedoms. We've seen it particularly in the US. And now with this new rule, we're seeing some backlash in the UK as well. There's also the fact that the messaging has been so unclear in England with the government toing and froing on face coverings and being rather inconsistent on whether you should wear one, where you should wear one, which really doesn't help. We've also seen lots of pictures of politicians not wearing masks, even when they're in enclosed spaces uh, without social distancing. So they're not necessarily giving the best example and also just contributing to a bit of confusion. And, you know, we just don't have that norm or that culture of wearing face coverings in England. Um, I, I don't know about where you guys are, but, you know, around me, I don't often see people at the moment wearing them. Maybe that will change when people do have to wear them to go to shops. Maybe they'll opt to wear them more frequently as well as they just get, a, you know, people just get a bit more used to seeing people wearing face coverings and it exerts that sort of social encouragement to do so. I was presented with a really good example of this the other day when um, for the first time in a while, my partner and I went to our local Chinese supermarket. So it's a quite a big place, um, size of a Tesco's or something like that. But unlike when you go into a Tesco's or a Sainsbury's or whatever your supermarket of choice is, where basically no one is wearing a face covering or a mask right now in the Chinese supermarket, all the staff are wearing masks, they're behind shields, everyone that's going inside is wearing a mask. And I think there's a as you say, Vicky, there's a huge challenge around cultural norms. Obviously, most of the people who were in the Chinese supermarket were Chinese or used to spending time around people of Chinese origin. So they were wearing masks. It was normalized. Um, and because of that, it felt normal for my partner and I to wear masks. And we did. But if you're in a big supermarket and no one's wearing masks, then they're not going to. And as you say, there's been so much confusion about when you should and when you shouldn't that the simple, clear message of wear a bloody mask should be quite easy for people to grasp. What might not be quite so easy for them to grasp is what they should be wearing. So what kind of face covering is safe and appropriate? Yeah, there's a lot of different options out there um, that you can either make yourself or buy ready-made. Most of us don't need a surgical mask or a respirator, and you should probably leave those to people who do. So, you know, healthcare workers, carers, people who really need actual personal protective equipment. If you're just going about your daily business, you don't need that. Technically, all you need to meet the regulations is a face covering. So it doesn't actually have to be a mask. It could be a scarf or a bandana, which you can wrap or tie around your face. The important thing is to make sure that it fits tightly around your face. You need to breathe through it, not around it. So if it's kind of hanging off all floppy, it might not really be doing much for you. It's best if it has two or three layers of fabric. 
Um, it, obviously, it needs to be a fabric you can breathe through. Um, so something like cotton is good. You don't want it to be too loosely woven because then it won't be catching the particles. If you if you hold up a piece of fabric to the light, uh, if lots of light is coming through, it might not be the best thing to choose for a face covering. And unless it's disposable, you should be able to wash it easily at high temperature because you need to be washing them basically after every use. You know, there's no point wearing it and then um, kind of keeping all those germs around and, and re-wearing it and stuff. Um, so you can make your own. Um, you can, you know, there's lots of tutorials and things online. You can either get ones that go behind your ears or that tie behind your head. Uh, and there's plenty that you can buy. Our colleague Alex Lee has highlighted one particular issue as well, which is that most face masks cover your mouth, obviously, uh, and therefore make it impossible for those who rely on lip reading to understand you. So there are actually transparent face masks available that get around this. They look a bit like a diving mask, but are, of course, breathable. Uh, and as well as helping with lip reading, they make it easier to show your facial expressions. There's various other technological innovations going on, lots of people designing new things like masks that amplify your voice and things like that um but really that you know the minimal thing you need is a couple layers of fabric that sit tightly over your nose and mouth so what are people wearing has, has everyone got their mask and are they using it regularly matt reynolds i've got a nice little it's kind of blue patchwork pattern which i got from someone on etsy not actually sure who they are um but problem is is i, I think i measured the size of my face wrong because mm. actually it's a tiny bit too big and when i breathe you know all my breath kind of comes out of the top near my nose and then fogs up my glasses and i understand that glass fogging glasses fogging is a major uh, issue with mask wearing but i feel that could have been um it was a little bit my fault there because i should have got the size down i overestimated my head size is it not that is a good point well it's it's elasticated but also it has a kind of uh, nose section mm. and that bit obviously is you know built into it and that because of that it it's not quite as flush fitting uh, to your face even if you try and pull it tighter so yeah glasses issue vicky what do you have well one hack i've heard for the glasses issue if other people are uh, experiencing this um, is if, you, if you're making one yourself or if you can adapt one that you've bought, is putting a wire or a pipe cleaner over your nose so that you can then mould it to the shape of your nose and then it will fit more snugly there. You can also put your glasses on top of the fabric if, they, if your glasses are big enough to do that and they can maybe kind of hold it in place a bit. Uh, so I think it's an issue of the fit around the nose if you're finding your glasses are fogging up a lot. Um, so there's a little life hack. You can try that out, Matt, and report back to us on whether it works. I've tried making a couple myself. It was it was quite easy um, with some spare fabric I had on the sewing machine. One of them's black and looks pretty goth and cool, and one of them is has a, a zebras on it. Very nice, Matt Burgess. Are you masked up yet? Uh, yeah, I've got a light, uh, sorry, a lime green neon one, mm. um, which came from uh, one of the various brands that are selling them. Um, and yeah, it's been, I think I've got a couple of trains recently, um, sort of going out to the countryside to do a walk, escape um, the streets of London. Um, and I think my biggest pet peeve is people um, on trains that aren't wearing them properly. So um, you've got, you get people that obviously have their nose out or sort of just put it round their chin instead of sort of covering their face and just you're on the train and the guidance is pretty clear um you should be wearing a mask put it over your face like 
there's something to be said for people that are not wearing them on the trains and they may have legitimate reasons to do so obviously but the people that have got them with them but not wearing them properly that's my pet peeve yeah i think um the big thing i found from uh going around quite a lot of shops this week uh wearing a mask is putting it on and keeping it on taking it on and off you tend to become more aware that you're wearing it but once it's been there for a while and you get used to your face being a bit warmer but it's fine leave it on if you're hopping in and out of lots of different shops and you soon forget it's there and it feels much better podcast at wired.co.uk what are your mask life hacks or tips for being more comfortable or wearing them more successfully do let us know podcast at wired .co.uk. Time for a couple of your emails now. Vicky, you've got one about trains. Yes, Reiner emails about our story last week on train travel. He lives in Sweden and has relatives in Germany and says he used to always take the night train, but one experience made him switch to flights for a while. So it went as follows. He bought a ticket, a return ticket from Sweden to Germany and back again. The first journey was more or less fine, but he ran into trouble on the way back. On his way from Hamburg to Copenhagen, there was an announcement and he had to switch to a bus and then to a different train. This meant he arrived late and missed his connection, but there was a late train to Malmö. He could perhaps catch if he ran for it. When he got to Malmö, no more trains were running, the office was closed, and so he had to find a hotel for the night. The next day, the staff were nice, let him use his ticket from the day before, but where he got into real trouble was when he tried to claim back the money from the hotel he had to stay in because of the delays. He'd bought his ticket in Germany, the hotel was in Sweden, but the problem was caused in Denmark. So after much back and forth, he eventually got it back, but he says that it took months and required the rail operators writing letters to each other to sort it out on basically who was responsible for his refund. So his story highlights basically what we discussed on the show last week. Um, You know, he found that customer service can sometimes be a bit poor. Information around the railways isn't standardized and real time data about delays and alternatives is hard to come by. And he says, what if it was my mother who does not speak Danish or Swedish who was on that train? Who would have helped her? Probably she would still sit there in the empty train. A cautionary tale about the need for standardized data protocols. Thank you very much for your email, Rhino. We've got another one from Dan, Matt Burgess. Yeah, so Dan writes in with a question um, and also says that since the easing of lockdown, he's been walking a lot and uh, has enjoyed the podcast during these. But the question is, uh, what's our opinion on the work from home culture we're in? Um, Dan says he struggled with it at first. Uh, focusing uh but has had much better set up over time uh and do you think that some companies will stick to having um staff stay at home permanently i think now we're considering that this will go on for quite a while um i'm moving from my incredibly temporary setup in fact i'm, I'm moving house to somewhere with a bit more space and i just bought a, a, a desk that's more comfortable and a chair that's more comfortable so kind of setting up for the medium to long term and the idea that I might go into the office three days a week and work a couple of days at home over the long term. So kind of making my home office less of a temporary setup and, and more of a permanent one. Because I, I think that's that's the difficulty, right? If you're not going to put in place a, a half-decent permanent setup, then it's always going to feel a bit like a halfway house. I don't know what you guys are thinking about that. Yeah, I would say yeah, very much the same. It's if I had a little bit more space to have a desk and everything, it wouldn't. I wouldn't mind so much because it would feel 
that I could have someone that felt like a workspace. At the moment, sharing a sort of a kitchen table with my partner in the same room as the living room and the kitchen. So it's pretty, uh, it's not really ideal for that perspective. But um, I, I think if this is going to become you know, more of a feature of our future, then that's useful because it means I can, you know, factor that in. So when I rent a place next time, I might choose someone that's a bit bigger or has a second bedroom. So certainly something that, um, uh, you know, not ideal right now, but you can kind of plan for it if you start to realise how, how long it's going to go on for. Matt Burgess? Yeah, I've, I've enjoyed working from home uh, for a few different reasons um, and would ideally like to be able to do so on a more regular basis going forward. I definitely don't miss the commutes across London. Um, there is one con- one concern, though, that uh, something that Natasha, our business editor, has highlighted a few times um, in that the facts that you're getting into sort of a hybrid system at the moment where some people are returning to offices around the UK and others are still working from home. And um, there are risks of like uh, people that don't go into the office whenever people are going into an office might be seen or treated in different ways. If you're getting management going into the office, um, then all the sort of like power is centered on that one location um, and other people might feel they need to go in because management is there, etc. So I think that there are quite a few different um, sort of challenges that companies need to look at as they sort of transition from um, from everybody working remotely to um, whatever the sort of position they go to more permanently. How about you, Vicky? Mm, yeah, it is an interesting question and one we've been talking about at Wired a lot. Um, I think... I don't think most companies will go work from home for everyone all the time permanently. Um, I think, you know, that kind of all remote approach is quite difficult to do. I think it will end up being something more of a hybrid, um, which has to be managed very carefully, as you're saying, Matt. Um, and I feel Natasha wrote a piece this week about the sort of lockdown rut, which a lot of us are feeling in now. I think originally I, I was quite pleasantly surprised at how um, easy it was to make the switch to working from home. And I'd, I'd anticipated it being a lot more difficult than it was. But now I have found it, you know, things getting a bit... Not difficult, but just, you know, it's a bit of a a slog, it feels like. And I think a lot of that is, you know, the constant stress of having to deal with this situation, the lack of social interaction of seeing people in the office every day and just having a chat and having that, that social contact. And I think also the situation where, you know, I think a lot of people have not been taking any time off or any holidays because, of course, you can't travel, you can't go anywhere. Why would you use up your holiday time? And I think, you know, people are now realizing you don't just need that time to travel and do things that you want to do. You actually do need it to take a step back and, and refresh. So I think it's a mix of those things. They're kind of hammering home the, the long term impact of this scenario. And living in a temporary kind of situation but it isn't that temporary right we've been here since march now and i've been staring forlornly out of my window for uh, for getting on half a year by the time I, I moved to um a different flat and it can be quite easy as you say not to take that holiday and not to do things that you would ordinarily do to release the pressure and um, podcast at wired.co.uk how are you coping with lockdown fatigue if you're suffering from it at all are you starting to take holidays are you mixing things up with your working um habits are you going into the office are you having in-person meetings with colleagues in the park what are you doing to kind of get around this uh difficulty with being stuck between the old normal and the new normal potentially podcast at wired.co.uk please do 
get in touch. We'll finish the show this week with news of a new thing from Wired. If you're not familiar with them, we've been doing virtual briefings. This is where our editor, Greg Williams, sits down with the great and good from the technology industry to discuss some of the big changes that are coming our way. On Monday, July 21st at 1pm, he'll be chatting to Kate Callot, who's the director of AI Ecosystems from the Machine Learning Group at arm it's a really really interesting set of briefings and you can catch up on the archive on the wired website to register your free ticket to the briefing head to bit.ly forward slash wired vb that's bit.ly forward slash wired vb they're about 25 minutes long and well worth your time to hear from some very very smart people about how the world is changing in response to the coronavirus pandemic that's it for this week thank you so much for listening as always we will catch you again same time next week goodbye bye, bye. goodbye